You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to another edition of Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you, so tell us what you think. You can email us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line money reimagined. Sheila is out this week, so it's me on my own, but what I'm bringing to you are recordings from an interview I did earlier this month with two leaders in fund management, both of whom have significant interests in crypto. One is Jan Van Eck, the CEO of Van Eck Funds, and the other is Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. Van Eck and Bitwise have both filed applications with the Securities and Exchange Commission for a Bitcoin exchange traded fund, otherwise known as an ETF. But rather than enter into the parlor game of guessing when Gary Gensler's SEC will approve an ETF, I decided to avoid that topic and focus on the bigger picture. I started by asking each of them, Jan first, then Matt, what they saw as the most significant barrier to widespread acceptance and adoption of crypto. Their answers led us down a path of discussing the relevance of the popular digital gold analogy for Bitcoin. The question I wanted to put to you guys, and I'll go to you first, Jan, is I've been covering this space for 10 years now. And I think we all thought there may be some tipping point moment when the world would suddenly embrace this. And certainly there's been some incredible growth both in terms of prices and activity and development, phenomenal growth. But at the same time, it always feels like, no, it's not yet there. So what is the single most important barrier that you see toward wider adoption of crypto? Sure. Thank you. Uh, uh, I really break it down into, are you talking about crypto as an investment, as an asset class uh, that should be in people's portfolios, or as a technology to be adopted? And I use this uh, example of the relational database, which was a big breakthrough in the architecture of databases 50 years ago or, or more. And it created a lot more productivity, almost like AI is doing with technology today. But who cares? It wasn't investable, right? It was a nice technology, but it wasn't investable. So I w- I'll start with the investable aspect of it. And I think that you know, I, in tw- since 2017, I firmly believe that Bitcoin is a store value alternative to gold. And, but I also say it's sort of like an eight-year-old child. It's going through evolution and adoption, even this year, you know, with the ordinals kind of, um, you know, breakthrough for a while and, you know, sort of transaction fees being a thing in Bitcoin, right? It's just, it's, it's evolving, it's code, it's kind of living. And I think there's a lot of investor types that haven't adopted it yet. And that's what I see kind of going forward in the future, you know, whether it's probably frontier countries adopting it more maybe even formally through their central banks or something like that. I think that's foreseeable. I don't see the German central bank or the Swiss central bank buying it anytime soon, but it's possible. One of my colleagues pointed out, I think you all did a survey of, sorry, uh, this is a long answer, but yeah, um, Coindesk did a survey, I think, of you know, perceptions globally of crypto. And there was a big break between EM and I guess the, it specifically it was energy usage. Mm-hmm. It being friendlier for energy usage was the majority view in the emerging markets and in the developed markets, it wasn't that. It was the opposite. So um, anyway. I see, I see Bitcoin as kind of going through cycles and gradually getting more investor adoption, you know, the, the ETF aside. So let me stop there and give it to my colleague, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. I agree. And I like that separation of investment case versus sort of maybe real world utility. 
you know, I would add uh, on the investment case, I think it's already there. I agree it's a, a digital alternative to gold. And so the people who are holding it are using it for its use case. And I think the barrier to mainstream adoption really is the ETF. Uh, I know we'll talk about that more later. But I think if you look back at gold, it was the ETF that brought it into the mainstream. There were a few gold funds before the ETF. Van Eck ran one of the longest running, maybe the longest running, a phenomenal fund. Um, but it really wasn't mainstream until we had an ETF. And I think that will be the tipping point. On real world use cases, if you look at like the Ethereum ecosystem, I actually think we surmounted one of the major hurdles over the last two years. I think what stopped the NFT boom and the DeFi boom was actually the rise in transaction costs as much as anything else. I think there was not enough throughput in that ecosystem to allow it to go mainstream. And I think the development of layer twos have allowed it. I think that's necessary, but not sufficient. So there's still additional barriers, there are regulatory barriers, there are design use case barriers. But I actually think that throughput question was the biggest one. And we surmounted it. We just haven't seen the fruits of it because of these other steps that we need to take as well. Okay, so there's actually on both of those answers, some things I want to sort of like dive into a little bit here. The first one is like this idea of it being gold. And I think in a way, I think maybe you can read from it slightly differently because, Jan, you're talking, this is what its use case is, but there is some, still some evolution that, in a way that Bitcoin needs to go into. What I think is fascinating about that is like, okay, gold isn't going to evolve. It is just, it's just gold. It's in the ground, right? But, but there is this, Bitcoin is code, but it's also a community. It's a, it's a living, breathing ecosystem of human beings, uh, which makes it sort of unique. And, and, and so therefore, like, you know, how it evolves into being recognized for, for being the status. Is there an educational component to this, for example? Like, is it important that people kind of get in their heads? We can all use the digital gold analogy, but even getting there requires an understanding about why this actually does do that. Well, let me, uh, this is Jan, I am going to pick a, pick a fight with you on the gold side because the use of gold as an investment has changed dramatically over the last 100 years. So even if you look at the history of our company, Van Eck, the reason we started our first gold fund as a gold mining fund is that it was illegal to own gold uh, in 1968. So you see both Bitcoin and gold being affected, not just sort of by securities regulation, but much bigger political, even geopolitical debates. But if you go back to before, the, before FDR, right, gold was the underpinning of central banks globally with the idea of trying to reduce currency volatility so that there would be more global trade and global wealth. But then we, they moved basically away from the gold system. FDR did when he wanted to spend you know, more money during World War II. Anyway, so, so, you know, gold has been in and out. And now more recently, central banks around the world post-Ukraine war are buying massive amounts of gold in their central banks because they don't trust the U.S. to hold their dollars anymore. Okay, so maybe that's, that's a little historical quibble, but I do think that the role changes, and I think it will change with Bitcoin going forward as well, just sticking to Bitcoin. It still sounds to me as if that is a discussion about the external factors, right, i.e., regulatory models, whatever, where governments stand. And all of that is maybe what the conversation of what gold is and what a, a secure, uncorrelated investment needs to be. It's all contingent upon what is actually happening in that geopolitical circle. So in some respects, Matt, it gets back to your point about like, we're still sitting here waiting for the regulators to make a decision about an ETF or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I do think we are. I want to hit one more thing on the gold thing, and then I'll get to that because I think it's really important. There is this perception that gold has been the same for 5,000 years completely wrong. Most people's perceptions about gold are untrue. We went off the gold standard in the early 1970s and people didn't know what gold was, 
right? They were figuring out what its role in the world was. Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, that was the single best decade to be invested in gold. That was a phenomenal time. When stores of value move from uncertainty to established is when they accrue a lot of value. And that's what's happening in Bitcoin. I think there's some direct analogies to gold. I'd also add gold is a lot more volatile than people give it credit for. People think of it as this steady eddy. It has big swings up and down 20, 30% a year. It's not a store of value doesn't have to be day-to-day unvolatile to be useful. It has to hold value or accrue value over long periods of time. And I think people discredit Bitcoin because they misunderstand gold a little bit. Just to add a comment on Bitcoin before we get off of that. Gold shares, um, to your point, like Bitcoin miners, fell 90% from 2011 to their lows in 2016. I mean, you don't get worse than that, mm-hmm. right, in terms of volatility. So, And, and that's a, a part of the ecosystem. It's not bullion, but still, I, I completely agree with you. So I just wanted to add that. I do think also, and I'm gonna, I really want to push you, Matt, on this, that we have a global view of regulation of Bitcoin, right? Because China has really taken its foot off the brake over the last year. And I think that's, that's, you know, I call it the country the size of the United States. I think that's super important. Yeah, I think that's really important too. I actually agree. And I think that's been going on for the last decade. It's sort of like a blanket that won't cover the whole world. And when somebody pulls it, then another government's like, oh, maybe we have an opportunity. I think that's what we saw in China with the US being more restrictive. And then Hong Kong saying, well, what if we aggressively banked gold? Maybe there's an economic opportunity there. And I think it's sort of anti-fragile in that sense. Can I just punch down? Maybe we're going to move to the technology side, but I just want to punch down on Bitcoin because I think it, as an investment, is potentially relevant to everyone's portfolios here at this conference. I mean, you may not like, there are investors like Warren Buffett that will never invest in gold and would never invest in Bitcoin. But for a lot of people, the biggest risk out there, I would say, macro risk, is U.S. federal budget deficit. And I don't know of a better hedge than gold or Bitcoin. So maybe that risk doesn't come to fruition in our lifetimes, but it has got to be an alternative that people think of regardless of everything else in crypto. Yeah, I would just, (laughs) Jan and I are going to keep going back and forth. I would add it doesn't have to come to fruition for gold to be a good, uh, for Bitcoin to be a good investment. It's an insurance against that potentiality. And if you're a wealthy individual, that's one of the biggest risks to your long-term wealth and holding that insurance policy regardless of the outlook. Last thing I would add is we've come a long way. The other mistake people make when looking at Bitcoin regulation is like evaluating us today versus a year ago. If you evaluate us today versus 10 years ago, massive progress. Even today versus five years ago, look at the conversation in Congress today around crypto versus where it was two or three years ago. People need to relax a little, take the long view, and they'll, they'll probably have a better outlook for their long-term investment. That historical lesson from Jan led us into one of my favorite topics, the international macro and geopolitical factors that will shape demand for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies going forward. After that, Matt followed up with his optimistic take on the tech side of things, addressing the scaling challenges that a surge in international demand for crypto would inevitably bring. I'm very glad that we've moved into the international sphere in this because I think this is what makes this thing so interesting, right? It, it is, as, as gold is as well, something that is inherently undefined by a particular nation state. Bitcoin lives in a borderless construct and therefore the regulatory impact on it has to be considered on that international level. But I suppose I'd like to just drill down a bit further. Like, how, do you, how important do you think some of these sort of sweeping geopolitical shifts you've seen? You mentioned the fact that Ukraine war has led to 
certain central banks actually buying gold and so forth. Is there part of this risk that, we're, that you're sort of expecting people to hedge against? Is inherent in that a something of a breakdown in the international financial system? We saw, you know, SWIFT uh, kicking Russia and China and Russia doing this, you know, interesting arrangements around CBDCs and so forth. I mean, does this feed into the, to the risks that you are talking about, Jan? Yeah, 100%. Um, there was a meeting amongst the new BRICS or expanded BRICS uh, two or three weeks ago, and a lot of people, I think, justifiably said, listen, this is not a stable political group, right? They're very disparate countries that are part of it. But one of the aspects of it is they want to develop an alternative payments mechanism. I mean, I don't think the U.S. government really understands how profound the rest of the world has reacted to the seizure of, uh, you know, Russia's uh, reserves. It's, it's huge. And, you know, China had been beating this drum, but I think the rest of the world is, is now on that theme. And, you know, to what extent crypto plays a piece? Both Brazil and India have tremendous digitalization platforms that they've developed for their citizens, free payments and things. So I don't know if it has to be crypto per se. The one thing I would say as well is there's a, there's a new emerging markets narrative in my mind of who are the post-China growth explosion, you know, kind of leaders. And I like to point out Saudi, Brazil and India uh, combined, they will exceed the GDP of Europe in about 10 years. So anyway, that's my view. Yeah, I agree with that. The only thing I'd add on is a mistake I see people making with regards to the, the Russian seizure is they assume that the market today for, let's say, gold's market cap is what it will be in the future when they calculate the potential addressable market of Bitcoin. They're looking at 12 or $16 trillion. I think post-Russia, the demand for non-sovereign stores of wealth is going to double, triple, quadruple over time as more states realize that they need a way to store wealth outside of places other governments can seize it. So I think that's not a static number. That's going to be a dramatically growing number. And that's optimistic for sort of all stores of value. All right. So we've gone pretty good and deep in some of this geopolitical stuff and, and Bitcoin and its place in it. Why don't we shift to the tech uh, question here? And Matt, you were talking about you think that the advance of layer twos has helped to resolve the throughput problems, the transaction costs and so forth. So maybe what does it mean? Does it mean Ethereum has won, for example? Is there, is there a layer one battle that's relevant? Does Solana, does Solana matter? Do all the other protocols matter? Or is this now we've, we've solved it with layer twos? I'm of the view that we're too early to know for sure. So from an investment perspective, I would diversify. I think it's likely that Ethereum is the winner, but not certain. I think layer twos are likely the solution, not certain. I think what it means more importantly is that big entities can now move into this space and build in this space because they can see the potential for scale. Right? If you were a large corporate, whether you're, um, you're a company like Nike or another brand-oriented entity or a finance-oriented entity, you couldn't build on a system where the fees would range from $0.50 cents to $200 in the course of a year, which they did on ETH. It's only once you have stability of fees that creates a reasonable user experience and stability of throughput, which creates a reasonable user experience, that you can seriously think of this as a way to monetize your brand or to build a new financial ecosystem. And that's why I think you see Nike doing $200 million of, of ETH-related revenue. I think you see PayPal launching a stablecoin. I think you see these big entities see this as a viable space in a way that they didn't. In the same way that you couldn't think about streaming movies when we were on dial-up internet, you couldn't think about doing a lot when the fee spikes were so egregiously painful. And I really think that was what stopped sort of the, the surge of adoption in 2021. It's not enough 
to get us to mainstream. But like I said, I think it's, it's necessary, even if it's not sufficient. I think it's a sea change. I think what's interesting about that is it may be that the first use case for things like NFTs was just speculation, right? Because it was like, am I going to buy my $69 million people? I don't really care so much about the fees in that context. But if I'm going to be doing Nike's smaller little you know, NFTs that give you some access to a sneaker or something, then all of a sudden it really matters, right? So this broad public use case, as opposed to the sort of the narrow, wealthy speculator, I think is maybe where this thing breaks down. Jan took us back to the regulatory question, offering a positive take on government's approach to standardizing anti-money laundering and know-your-customer rules, otherwise known as AML-KYC. I think one thing that makes me optimistic about it is I'm arguing for maybe some kind of regulatory consensus around the following, which is the on-ramps into, I'll call it DeFi, have an AML-KYC layer right? So whether it's a bank or an investment advisor or something like that, but there's no reason that they then, like a Coinbase, can't reach into DeFi and use a, an exchange, um, a Uniswap or a DYDX to transact. I mean, the New York Stock Exchange doesn't vet all its clients, right? There's, there's a separation of duties. And I can't believe there's anyone in DC that would agree to what I just said the way I said it. But I think we're kind of headed that way. And I think that's something the industry can live with. And the other thing that I don't, I don't know if this will happen, but we have a panelists from Fidelity. And one of the things I think about, and not just the friction of some of the apps and stuff for individuals is, you know, what if the Fidelity took all its FX transactions, right, related to all its non-US stocks and bond purchasing and said, I want to throw that FX volume on an exchange. It really doesn't take a lot. I mean, Fidelity and Franklin are pro-crypto. If they both got together, guess what? You know, market makers would be there on the other side, right? As would banks. I don't know. That's it. I guess what I would say, there's, it's not clear what the path will be, but there are several paths that this could take on the technology side. I would just add uh, that idea of the AML KYC perimeter and sort of digital passporting that, that goes along with you is so simple and so correct that it feels to me inevitable that that is the way that we will go. And that's how DeFi will eventually go mainstream. And it'll solve real pain points that we have here in the ecosystem today uh, that make things enormously efficient. If you run private funds, you have to do the accreditation of every single individual. There's no reason that can't be tokenized and travel along with them and be instantaneous. And then you could have exchanges of private funds amongst accredited individuals and unlocks so much. It's just a, it's a regulatory step forward, but I suspect we'll get there in the next two or three years. I don't think it's as far away as people imagine. Okay, so maybe a bit more on that because I think it's like we, we, we often think as if there is this inherent conflict between the open, uh, non-identified sort of pseudonymous activity that crypto is supposed to represent and DeFi is seen in many respects as being more open and, and therefore potentially efficient because those barriers don't exist. But you're talking about the reality that the world does actually have all these KYC AML requirements and trying to find some sort of compromise in the middle that makes this thing more, more fluid, right? And I suppose to both of you, because like, you've both alluded to it, are you actually seeing regulators open to these sorts of models? No, I don't <laughs> think. I mean, I, I think we're moving in the right direction is I guess what I would say. What, what I see is regulators becoming more sophisticated about crypto and able to have the vocabulary to have that conversation, at least here in the U.S. Jan may know more abroad. At least here in the U.S., 
I see them able to have these sorts of conversations in a serious way where they were unable to two years ago. In the current Congress in the U.S., I don't know that we're going to get there right now, but I think we're moving in the direction. That's why I don't think it's the today. I think it's in the next few years. But Jan may know internationally. I would, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert, but my observation is that countries around the world generally will have a stable crypto regulatory regime. And I'll say it's baked in in six months or 12 months. You have Europe, Europe uh, regulations come in into place on January 1st. And then you look at a country like Brazil, which has been very crypto friendly. I mean, the head of the central bank wants to tokenize every asset and really for the purpose of reducing costs to consumers, which is a very resonant, I think, political argument. Now, there's some things like finance kind of doing whatever kind of activity uh, without maybe a, a, a firm supervisory layer on top of what Binance is doing in Brazil. But my, part of my premise is that will come into effect. Like it won't be just you can do whatever, you know, there'll be a little bit more enforcement. And so you add to that um, Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Mideast, um, I, I, I think it's going to be the U.S. that's going to be left out because you can't stop it, right? And, and you know, what I, what I, my view of the U.S. And, and the securities laws is, look, tokens aren't a security or not a security. They're kind of a mix. It's complicated. So get over it. Like, it's just a new thing. And if you keep trying to define as one thing or another, it's very confusing to the rest of the world. And we, like, read cases like Ripple, and we think it provides clarity, but, you know, it's sort of still trying to put it into one box or another. So, um, yeah, I'm more optimistic about what's going on in the rest of the world. Okay, that's all we have time for. For now, hope you enjoyed that episode. Please come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined when I will be back with Sheila. Remember, you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we do indeed love to hear from you. So please email us at podcasts at coindesk.com with the subject line Money Reimagined. Okay, that's all for now. See you later. Bye. You're listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today's show was edited and produced by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme song is The News Tonight by Shimmer. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.